everyone, and welcome to another episode of High Five on the Road. This is another one. I'm like a track record of not actually leaving the office for these, but this is another one where I'm just going to do it virtually. Um, so I'll let my guest introduce themselves. Over to you. Hello, um, I am uh, Meg Bolger. And when you ask what do I do for a job, uh, the best way that I describe this is that I am, uh, I mean, I'm a full-time social justice facilitator. Mm-hmm. My two big passions in life uh, and in my work are social justice and facilitation and social justice facilitation. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, in that Venn diagram of social justice and facilitation, I really try to, I, I mostly do work uh, really in the uh, social justice facilitation or facilitation space. Mm-hmm. So I make websites, I um, make tools, and uh, most of the way that I uh, make my living is by doing trainings and workshops and train the trainers. When for you was the first time you experienced adventure education or experiential education? So I led um, wilderness orientation trips as an undergrad. And um, I actually didn't go on, like at, at Hamilton College where I went to school, they uh, like a lot of people went on wilderness orientation trips and now um, some sort of expedition trip mm-hmm. is required. Um, but I didn't go on one. Yeah. And uh, one of my friends encouraged me to apply to be a leader. And even up to like the third inner third round of the interview, my, um, my like now mentor, then boss, I guess, Andrew was like, do you know what you're signing up to do? And I was like, not really, but it sounds really fun. And um, he was like, okay, I'm going to tell you yeah. about it. And so um, yeah, so wilderness orientation was my first foray into experiential education and experiential uh, and kind of like wilderness education yeah. um, or wilderness leadership. I, we didn't do a lot of education, uh, like any type of like formal mm-hmm. goals. It was mm-hmm. really like bonding and um, getting people oriented to each other more than oriented to the woods. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then I was doing social justice, uh, diversity and inclusion trainings, and Andrew encouraged me to go to um, AEE, the Association of Experiential Education, and that's when that whole world kind of opened up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, whoa, there are so many people out here who are also facilitation geeks and also yeah. um, like really into um, processes and how to work with groups and like the power of, um, of play and adventure. So that's yeah. kind of my foray into that world. I think that it seems like from interacting with people that, 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 um, not knowing it exists and then being shown it and then being realizing that, you know, you found your home in a way of like, this is everything I thought, like I agree with, you know, the, the models, they seem to fit into my life, seems to flow for everyone. It's very rare that like people know it young and they're like, Oh, I'm going to keep, I'm going to, I'm going to be an experiential educator. I'm going to be a facilitator. I don't know mm-hmm. many people who have that thought. Um, and you get to f- fall into that. And that's often by someone showing it. Um, shout out to Andrew. That's Jillings, right? Andrew Jillings. Yeah. Andrew Jillings. My, uh, my Ipswich compatriot. Um, oh, hometown so, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you mentioned in that, that, someone said that you should lead it um, or guided you into that. This is some, this is a harder question because I think of this of myself sometimes too. What, what do you think you had? What skills were you demonstrating? What traits were you having naturally maybe that led someone to want, think that this is right for you? Um, 
<laughs> the the outdoor orientation, like why yeah. why my friend encouraged me to do that. Yeah. I think <laughs> uh, for me, I've always attributed it to, and I've never like fact checked this with Andrew. <laughs> I've always attributed it to a weird combination of like real willingness to be goofy and mm-hmm. like fun and outgoing with like serious ability to be responsible. Mm. So like, I think it's that combination for me of like, um, for me, I think that's what it was. I don't think that's necessarily true for everybody, yeah. but I think for me, it was like, this person is very willing to like put themselves out there or be goofy or be kind of like, um, yeah, like to, to get to know people and just like put themselves out there mm-hmm. and they are also responsible. And like, I would trust them if somebody broke their leg that they would like, figure out what the responsible thing to do would be. Um, So I think it's that combination of, of kind of like lighthearted fun with like, I also trust you. Hmm. Um, So I think that's what it was. That's what I've always thought it was anyway. (laughs) I'm going to get a phone call. That's not it. Um, (laughs) When you stand up in front of a group or you speak in front of a group and I try to think of like what my coping mechanisms are, how do you get over the feelings of anxiety or that natural state of shyness for you when you speak in front of groups? I know for me, it's a hundred percent that I am in a role like when, because I have a job and I have a task oh, okay. and I have a role responsibility. and responsibility. Yeah. And it, and it's not just, and it's, and it's like, it's also like a title and a role. Like it's not even, um, uh, that like I am, I am responsible to you and therefore I must care for you or like show up for you in this way. Mm -hmm. Like I can remember even in like middle school or high, it was like probably early high school, you know, there was a, um, Burton snowboards was in my hometown and Mm -hmm. I would volunteer at their big sale every year. And for volunteering, you got like store credit. Mm -hmm. And so like, I would, you know, like help people find shoes and help people find clothes and like help people find gear. And I had no problem going up to people. Hey, do you need help? What do you need? Like, how can I help you with this? Like no problem doing that because I had a role, like (laughs) I had a shirt that said volunteer. And so like I had permission in that way to just like step into that role. But if I don't have a type, or mm. a mission or a role, then like I'm not going to go up to to strangers and just ask them questions. But like that really that really would snap me into a different mode. And so for me, like there's a lot of things about being a facilitator that I um, I feel that like that role is something that is separate from me. It is something I step into. Mm-hmm. And so it's never been um, like I know that's both who I am and not who I am. Yeah. And um, that per- that permission giving really allows me to step it into it in a different way. That's a great way to think of it. Cause I'm about to do a program. It's going to be in front of 200 people and speaking in front of large crowds is often a concern for people, but I tend to be okay as soon as I start. And I think mm-hmm. that that's that same piece of like, I'm wearing a logo. They've employed me. Like I'm getting paid to be here and then I can just switch on that. I'm in a work kind of mode instead. If I was doing this, I did you know, classic, classic facilitator. I, I facilitated at my wedding, I led activities <laughs> in the reception. I know it's like super facilitator nerd to bring your work home. But in that I was way more nervous. I think it's because I wasn't, you know, I was like in front of family and you think that would be a safe space. That was not because it was, I was almost showing a side of myself that was not the side that most people knew me and my family. I had to be a facilitator of my family. I don't know. It just felt weird. I would say, I would say too, that like, you know, I don't know, not a mask in a bad way, but more like, um, like, 
I think it's really helpful to wear like a specific thing when you facilitate or mm. have like a costume that you set oh. it into. Right. Yeah. And so in that way, like you were like, Oh, I'm not in my costume, yeah. I'm not in my mode. And yeah. so like, it's a real mixed, it's a real mixed signal to your brain and to your body of like how you're supposed to show up in that space. And, yeah. um, and that's yeah. So like that—that that is a partially what I was thinking too. Is just like oh yeah, because you're not you're not able to be in facilitator no. mode, and you're also not just like able to be in like fill family mode. Yeah. And so like it's just actually like an awkward striking of both. This seems like a, a possibly an obvious answer to this question, but it, it might not be for some people listening. But how in how do you um, take your love of facilitation and the work around facilitation and apply that to your social justice work? Where is the the symbiosis of those two worlds? Because I think for a lot of people maybe listening, we they don't necessarily use facilitation in necessarily the way you do it. It's you're taking a form and an outlet that's different than the challenge course team development world, although it's probably has similar overlap. But where's the connection there for you? Um. I mean, to me, there's a lot of different ways to do social justice work. And yeah. I've always done it very much in, in like an education space. Like that is my like specific niche. Mm-hmm. And to me, um, like the word facilitate means to make easier. Mm-hmm. Right. And so ultimately what I'm trying to do is make it easier for people to engage with a really, um, for some people like really divisive, really personal, really scary, um, really like contentious topic. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like I use facilitation to help, um, to help me do that social justice work. I don't do a lot of lecture. I don't do a lot of preaching. Mm-hmm. I don't do a lot of like fact-based um, education because for me, a lot of the ways that I focus on social justice work is basically like helping people understand how to human better with each other, yeah. how to relate better, how to receive feedback, how to engage, how to change, you know, like kind of conditioned habits or conditioned understandings of the world. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that requires like really big shifts, um, whether that's, or, or, or just like a little shifts a lot of the time. And so, yeah, facilitation is the way that I engage the group. So social justice is just my topic, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that, um, uh, I think a lot of people spend a lot of time talking to other facilitators within their topic area. They're like, Oh, we're like, we do social justice education. We do leadership education. We do corporate facilitation. We do whatever. And to me, like I've always, because probably I've been, you know, kind of on the outskirts of the experiential education world, I've always been like, but I'm learning so much from Mm -hmm. there that I can bring into my topic area. So like one of my missions or like kind of visions um, for, Uh, some of my projects has been to help people identify like with the word facilitator as much as with their topic area Mm. Um, and, and to see the value that we can like learn from across um, with each other. Cause for me, like I could spend the next 10 years going really deep into like social justice content knowledge, Mm -hmm. but the majority of, I think what actually changes the way that people feel in my workshops, what we get to do and where we actually get to is like how good as a, a facilitator I am. So I personally have like, I do spend a lot of time learning about social justice, but I, I try to spend um, a lot of time also thinking about like how, like how am I engaging people? How am I um, showing up for them? And to me like that, uh, it doesn't matter. Like it's, I don't know. It's like 
doesn't matter how good your yard sale is. If no one will come to it, like it doesn't matter how good your content is. If people are uninterested in talking to you or talking to each other, Mm -hmm. then you've lost already lost the ball game. So, um, yeah, and I'll I, stop there. No, and I, keep going. <laughs> yeah, no, and this might keep you going. But I was uh, very fortunate to listen to your keynote at, at the last regional AEE, um, and this isn't necessarily to like give you a massive ego, um, but <laughs> I've seen a lot of keynotes at that conference, and I've seen a lot of keynotes at other conferences. And for me, that was the probably one of the most impactful ones I've seen, only because or mainly because I think it does touch on what you were suggesting about facilitation is the piece that connects all of that and the connection before content piece. And if we can truly start to analyze the way that we're able to better connect with people, then some of these tougher topics are easier to breach because the the word facilitate exactly as you stated sort of means uh, making things easy. And you, you brought up in that keynote something that I reflected on myself a lot was the concept of um, the uh, the ignorance to evil uh, mm-hmm. uh, line on that? Could you speak a little bit about that? For because I I really took a lot from that, and I think maybe our listeners would enjoy that piece. If yeah, you can I'll try to bring it from the top of your head, yeah. But it, it's um, such a great uh, concept for when it comes to tough conversations. So there's a a great TED talk, and I will. Um, uh, see if I can remember the name of the person uh, or look it up here, but there's a wonderful Ted talk and it's about being wrong. I think mm-hmm. if you type in like being wrong Ted talk, it'll probably come up. And the person talks about like, what does it feel like to be wrong? And she kind of brings the group through like, actually it doesn't feel like anything to be wrong. It only feels like something when you find out that you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a kind of like, um, a tier uh, or like kind of a, a progression that she shared that I found really, really powerful. And um, I think it was ignorant, stupid, evil. Mm-hmm. So basically it was when we encounter people who think differently than us. And I think this, this, you know, yeah, who, who have a different understanding of something than us. The first assumption is that they're ignorant, mm-hmm. like, Oh, those people just don't know what I know. Um, and if they did, then they would agree. And so like, that's, that's the first step, ignorant. The second step is, oh, like, wait, maybe they do know what mm-hmm. I know. They must not know how to interpret it the way that I would interpret it. They're stupid. Mm-hmm. So we've got ignorant, stupid. And then the last stage is if you know the people have the information that you do and you know the people know how to interpret the information, then the last thing you have is that they're evil. Mm-hmm that they are just, there's something core to them that is maliciously interpreting that information or that is like not wanting that information to be true. And so like, they are just, they're just evil. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. And I just found that really, really powerful, especially in the ways that I see a lot of people engaging in social justice conversations, um, Mm -hmm. especially in the online space. I think we do this a little bit better in, in person with each other. I think, um, our default to evil is slower. Um, But I, I do see like, people are just like, Oh, these, you know, like I I saw kind of that progression happen of like, wow, these ignorant people, like how could you support something so destructive? Mm -hmm. And then it was like, God, these people are such idiots. Like, 
like, don't they see what I see? Mm -hmm. And then it was like, I, I really saw kind of like an escalation in the last few years of like, no, like these people know what I know and mm -hmm. they see what I see and they are still unwilling to like change or accept or, mm -hmm. Um, support and so therefore they're evil like there is something fundamentally yep. bad about them um, and to me like that's a really scary place uh, oh, yeah. for us to get to as a society and I think that's you, you know in terms of the facilitator piece or the experiential ed piece about connection before content mm -hmm. that's the miss like they're, they're, you miss the connection piece and if you don't do the connection piece you start to go down that line and I've caught myself you know, we're in a political climate and I don't necessarily need this to go political, but there's a political climate right now, which is embroiled in that mindset. And I caught, catch myself doing it consistently. And, and you've probably experienced this also in the work that you do. There is, see, it feels like sometimes there's a big eye roll to the word social justice, um, sometimes from people, because I think sometimes that we've we go down that line, but it's in the same way that people have that negative response and don't want to have tough conversations about politics. If you bring it up in a workplace, it feels like there's an eye roll. It's because we're, we've gone so quickly into following that model and I catch myself doing it, that that's what stops anyone from ever having, wanting to have a conversation. How do you, how do you stay motivated and this could be, this is facilitation. This could be in, in the work that we do also sometimes because the work we do can be taxing and physically and mentally taxing. But I would imagine more so in some of the stuff you do with tougher conversations, how do you stay motivated to keep doing it? And, or do you have moments in the work that you do where you're like just exhausted from the effort or is it, the, does the effort, like the, the exhaustion power you to keep going? I just can, I can imagine it's challenging. It's funny. I think people that I think people assume that what is really challenging is working with people who have really different viewpoints than yeah. me, or who are like just completely in opposition. Um, one, I should probably say up front, is that like I don't often get those people in my workshops That's because true. most of my workshops are opt-in spaces, <laughs> yeah. and so and that is really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, but occasionally, I do, and I actually don't find those people to be the most challenging mm, people. Okay. Um, I, I find a lot more challenge comes from the people who are like, I get it. I get it. Ah, <laughs> yes. You're doing this for those, those <laughs> yeah, the evil people. And I'm not yeah. one of them. No, yeah. and I'm not one of them. And huh. so like, thank you so much for doing this work. Yeah. Uh, you know, like you m must struggle all the time with kind of like those, they don't say the, they don't say evil people. They just say like those yeah, people, yeah, yeah. right? The not and I'm us, like, yeah. yeah, the not us. That's great. <laughs> um, I'm like, actually like, yeah. I, I I find that we have a lot of work to do. Like uh, us, the us has a lot of work mm -hmm. to do as well. And the us is actually harder to reach because when people are in, um, like when I've worked with people in really traditionally conservative States, like, um, especially the the liberal people and they're like, we know we don't know anything. Like we know we need so much help and so mm -hmm. much advice and so much support. Like, please, we are so mm -hmm. interested and eager to learn. Whereas like the people in like super liberal cities are like, can you believe the rest of this country? And I'm like, we also uh, have yeah. things to learn. Like we also yep. are, uh, you know, like um, that like all of this, uh, it's, we're not immune to it. Mm -hmm. And so like, I actually find the resistance of people who think they're part of the choir, mm -hmm. like that's actually much more challenging to break down. <laughs> um, whereas like, 
Um, and um, a lot of my work is is wanting people to to not jump to that evil assumption or not to separate themselves from other people. Mm-hmm. And so, though, like um, people feel a lot of liberal people feel really emboldened to roll their eyes yeah. at um, conservative people. And it's not that that is unjustified mm-hmm. and it's not that it's not um, like warranted um, at times, but to also know like, what does that do for your ability to see or connect or, with that person as a person mm-hmm. um, when you want to, not just when you don't want to, but like when you actually like, when that would be helpful for accomplishing what you want to accomplish, like it will actually make your job much harder. Um yeah, I think to, uh, uh, as you're saying this, I think to equate it to the work that I do, the people who are the hardest to teach how to belay and tie knots are actually rock climbers. And I think that's sort of like as, as, as close in, in terms of relationship, I can pair it because they have all this skill and they think they're already there. Yep. And to try to alert them to the fact that they're not there is more challenging than someone who is definitely not there. Because there's a very there's no hiding it. That's very clear, and that's easier to cultivate than someone who thinks they're already got it, and then they have you're having to unlearn a bad behavior, yep. rather than teaching yep. something blank on a blank slate. Yeah, I mean, I did a two day train the trainer one time with uh, with somebody who had a master's degree in women's studies, and we were talking about kind of gender and sexuality mm-hmm. one hundred and one. And that person said some of the things that I was like, I don't, I don't know. That's not at all what we're, <laughs> what we're sharing. And that, that's not the angle that we're using this from. And that's not the approach that we're encouraging you to do. Yeah. And there were people in complete ignorance, you know, who were <sighs> like, LG, I'm like, you're going to get it. It's going to be fine. But like at the end of these two days, you will feel like miles ahead of where you are. Yeah. And I think the whole training, she was just like, I know, I got it. I mm-hmm. get it. I got it. And I was like, but actually like the information has changed. Like some of the things that she, you know, thought she knew had changed and she wasn't paying attention because she had that. Um, oh, there's a word I'm really struggling to come up with. There's a, there's like a, um, a model for this where you think you're where you think you are can actually really get in the way of you actually getting there. Something you mentioned earlier, I'll just mention really yeah. briefly when people are kind of like eye roll at social justice, like yep. some of that is really understandable. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm like, if your experience with social justice has only been people telling you that you're stupid and ignorant, Mm -hmm. like you're not going to be like, I can't wait to go to that next (laughs) workshop. Like that's not going to inspire you. Um, and so I, I like, I understand, like, I, I really do connect to where that is coming from for people. And I don't, um, I don't resist that. Mm -hmm. I just think like it it is an unfortunate, um, way that most people have, or or that many people, not most, but I would say many people have had really unfortunately negative interactions with Mm -hmm. social justice. And for me, like, uh, somebody said this last week to me and I was like, yes, that is what I'm going for. Like, um, they said, when was the last time that somebody disagreed with you said, tell me more. And I was mm. like, yeah, that is my like marker of success. Like for me, like yeah. that is actually what I'm aiming at is like, I want somebody who completely disagrees with me to go, hmm, I'm going to have to think about that. And like, that has always been my, yep. mi- that, like my driving force. And that's not true for everybody. And that's, that's, um, that's okay. But for me, like I, you, it's okay for people to come in wherever they are because like my, my, the way that I'm trying to do this approach is, is to really allow you to be where you are and still inspire curiosity. 
That, and it's something that I, when I train, I always bring up to people that, that I want people to be thinking practitioners and not, I do this because Phil told me. Like right. I want people to ask questions. And so that I think that only increases education if we start to be more open to people asking questions rather than just, no, shut up, do what I tell you to do. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to hear your silly question, you know? Yeah, it's really destructive. Um, yeah. And it also means to me, like, it means it ends with that person. Like, if that person can't explain why they're doing what they're doing, they're just like, oh, well, some authority figure told me, mm-hmm. why, like, that I should do this. Then the learning stops with yeah. them because they won't be able to explain it to the next person. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so that's a that's a huge thing in my work, too, is, like, I want this knowledge to be your knowledge, mm-hmm. not to be my knowledge in your head. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, once again, where that facilitation piece, you're making it easier for them to be able to have these thoughts and have these conversations rather than just telling them. You wouldn't yep. be a facilitator if you just tell them the answer. You know, you yep. want them to be able to figure it out. And it comes to that in- experiential piece. Um, when it comes to facilitation, what are your, and I know you've written, you wrote a wonderful book on the magic of facilitation. Quick thing on that book, the texture of the book itself. <laughs> I don't know if people have commented on how good that like feels in the hand. Oh, you, you, okay. You like it? That's it's good a great, like, uh, like the texture of that paper. Yeah. There's other been people who have commented that to me. So I want to make sure you heard it here that the texture of the book is phenomenal, <laughs> but the content in it is also great. And what would, what are your, I'm going to try to put you on the spot here. What are your two biggest tips to someone about facilitation? What would be the two things you would go to if someone said, give me some tips about facilitation, Meg? What's your go-to? Man. Um, So one of the first chapters in the book is called teaching versus facilitation versus lecturing and, um, or might be those words in a different order. But I think for a lot of people who are not familiar with facilitation, are you, you I would actually answer this Mm. really differently depending on the person is not familiar with facilitation or is, can you, can you, I would say someone who, someone who is, because I do, I do agree. There is a whole, we were, we were having this discussion. We had a workshop that was called developing your facilitation style. And then Mm -hmm. we realized that how many people outside of us call it facilitation or term it that way. And that doesn't Mm -hmm. really market great. So I would say this is someone who does understand what we mean by facilitation. And then maybe been in the field for a bit, but they've just said, Hey Meg, what would be your tips for me? Something I've been really big about for the last couple of years is um, uh, something we talk about in the book, which is navigating your triggers. So basically Mm -hmm. like the things that throw you off your game um, and often the things that are, that can happen kind of like in the moment and can make you not be the kind of like generous present facilitator that you want to be. So whether that's like, if people make certain types of comments, if I see, you know, this type of person disengaging, if I, if somebody pulls out their phone, like it doesn't just make me be like, Oh, Hey, like we need to address that. It's, it actually completely Mm. throws me off my game. It makes me feel like personally attacked or it makes me feel like personally hurt or injured. Mm -hmm. Um, like to me, facilitation requires us to be present to what is happening in the group and not stuck in our own stories of ourselves. Um, it is for us to step into that role. And so for me, like navigating your triggers means like one of my tips would be like, you, you need to, um, know like what sets you off and what like throws you off your game and then coming up with strategies for like when that happens in the moment, like how are you going to come back to being present and make sure you don't add harm Mm -hmm. to the group? Because a lot of the ways that we react when we're triggered are going to further, uh, like, 
de- devolve the situation. Yeah. Um, or there are things that when we look back, we're like, I wish I hadn't done that. Why yeah. did I do that? So coming up, like identifying your triggers is one part and then navigating your triggers, like having strategies on how to address that would be the other. Um, what, what are your strategies? <clears throat> what are your personal ways to get rid of that through that? Cause I'm trying to think as you're asking that, like how I do that. My biggest one is, uh, so one of the th- kind of, uh, the strategies kind of get categorized. And one of the first ways is uh, the, the strat- like the category of safety goggles. So it's basically like, what do you put on before you go into a facilitation that will help you change how you mm-hmm. receive the information coming at you or the stimulus coming mm-hmm. at you? And so like for me in social justice workshops, like one of my go-to safety goggles is they learned that. Like if somebody says something rather than being like jumping into that ignorant, stupid evil, or rather than taking it personally, I'm able to, it like kind of hits my safety goggle of like, they learned that. And I'm like, mm. oh yeah, they learned that. Okay. And that makes me feel more optimistic that they can unlearn that. Yeah. So it's um, not coming from them. Someone, yeah. they learned it from somewhere. Wow. I like that. Yeah. And so my frustration then becomes at society rather than at that person. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. that usually helps me. And it also for me means like they can unlearn that. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, So like safety goggles is one of the ways that I most do it. Um, I kind of like layer up a couple of safety (laughs) goggles. Like they learned that, um, you know, like assume best intent and then you don't have to have them be generous. You can have a safety goggle that is like people suck sometimes, you know, like um, or like someone's going to say something stupid. And then when it happens, you can be like, there it is. I knew it. Said something stupid. <laughs> I put the goggles um, on for a reason. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's one of my strategies. And then, I mean, like deep breaths mm-hmm. is really a strategy. Like that can be both to reset your body or to like prepare your body for, like I'll hold my breath when I get anxious. Mm-hmm. And so like if I am mindfully breathing, it will stop me from holding my breath. Yeah. Um, but it also will like give me a minute, you know, like having taking a breath um, like sometimes all we need is five seconds so that we can make a better choice and so like rather than being like can you just stop that right like mm-hmm. before you snap at somebody just being like hold on i gotta take a big sip of my water here yeah. like okay yeah um, can you please put that down you know like just <laughs> like putting something <laughs> like having a drink of water or like getting a piece of candy that is like really chewy or um, just taking a mindful breath. Like all of those things will give you like a five second delay. And sometimes that's all you need. That's often the reason why I carry an agenda, like a list of activities I'm going to do. It's not because I can't remember what I'm going to do. It's so that I can go over to that sheet and pretend I'm like, writing on the sheet it's i think of that as the exact same thing or i'll go into a prop bag to look for a prop and then never come out with a prop i'm just i'm not looking for a prop (laughs) i'm just yeah i'm just praying to my bag for a second to deep to meditate (laughs) (laughs) please let me get through this day okay ready (laughs) you know yeah anything to try to separate that then the listing i do for anxiety too for me it's like it's like my safety blanket like my blankie carrying that around it doesn't mm-hmm. so it's not really too much i can't it's not like i don't know activities it's just so i can keep go away i say to facilitators sometimes there are two thoughts around why you might do an activity sometimes it's like what is it getting giving the participants but the other lens you should always have is what is it giving you and yeah. sometimes it's you're picking an activity because you won't have to speak for a bit like I'm yeah. going to give them an initiative that's going to take them a while to discuss as a group so that I can just have five minutes to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I, um, one of the things that I'm working on right now is this, this thing called facilitator cards. Yeah. And one of the ways that the cards, so that the cards are, um, like 60 different activity structures or kind of like processing tools that facilitators can use in really like any scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're, they're categorized in specific scenarios and specific goals, but they're also categorized by group size. So it'll be like, this is a pair based activity. This is an individual. This is small group. This is large group. And I know as a facilitator, any large group, I'm going to have to be present for any individual activity. I get five minutes. Mm-hmm. Like, and so when we were writing up some of the guides for these cards, I was like, man, like I think as a new facilitator, I wouldn't think I should do a pair activity or I should do an individual activity when I need five minutes, when mm-hmm. I need 10 minutes to regroup. But like, I know that as a facilitator who's been doing it for 10 years, that like, that is a great reason to do it. You know, like it doesn't always have to be for them because ultimately oh, yeah. if you need five minutes, you need to restore so that you can be, present for them. So that's something that I find really helpful. Like, and something I've definitely used the cards with is just like, I'm just going to look for an individual activity right now. Like I need five, 10 minutes to regroup, recenter, get a drink, go to the bathroom. And like, we don't have a break coming up or I miss the break or I had to plan on the break. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like just being able to like go to a couple of those activities is so helpful because yeah, I think that's a a mistake or not a mistake, but just like a thing that you learn as a seasoned facilitator is like, sometimes it's for you, not for them. Absolutely. And I think that uh, it's that first aider rule of protecting yourself before you run into, you don't run to the scene of the incident because you could endanger yourself in the process and that doesn't help anyone. So Mm -hmm. there is a self-preservation piece to facilitate in a program where you've got to look after yourself too. And if you need to do that by giving them something to do so you can do your own thing, that's really helpful. Um, so you mentioned in the cards, uh, the facilitator cards. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about uh, what people will get out of those cards and then, because they're not yet out, um, and then where the origin for that came from. Was that filling a need that you had as you sort of referenced it? Like I think a lot of times when facilitators come up with products, it's because we made them already for ourselves. And now yeah. we're like, ah, oh, other people would benefit from this too. But tell us a little bit about those. Um, so they did come from a need. They came from kind of a uh, like necessity is a mother of invention sort mm-hmm. of need. So uh, me and the person who I created them with, we had signed up to run this workshop and we had been doing train the trainers for years, but this was a slightly different type of train the trainer. Mm-hmm. And we had not communicated well with the client and had not realized just how different this was going to be until like a week out from the training. And we were like, Oh no, like we're not prepared to lead this training. Um, uh, like, and, and actually like, we aren't prepared to go back to them and say like, Hey, can you tell us like four hours more information on your group (laughs) so that we can actually prepare? Like we didn't, we were like, we can't do that. No, it's too late. Um, It's too late. So what we we decided was we are going to do this activity or we're going to facilitate this emergently. Like we are going to do an hour or two hours of curriculum and then we're going to run away into like a a room Mm -hmm. and then we're going to go, what's the next part? And then we're going to figure out activities to do and then we're going to go back. And like, so we had, we had no, we, we had like an, an literally 90 minutes of an agenda planned. And then in that 15 minute break, in the morning, we were going to plan the next 90 oh. minutes. And at lunch, we were going to practice the next 90 minutes. And so we knew that was the strategy that we were going in with. Um, I ultimately think it was actually the 
best strategy for that group. And it's actually the strategy that I have used more and more in my facilitation, but basically only because of these cards. Mm. So instead of prepping the content, we knew we couldn't prep the content Mm -hmm. because we didn't know what the content was supposed to be. Um, all we could do was prep for the activities. And what we decided was like in those 90, you know, like in that 15 minute break, we were going to have to decide like, okay, what content did we need to facilitate, but also how we were going to facilitate that content. We didn't know what the content would be. So the only thing we could prepare for was the how, how are we going to facilitate that? So we both scoured the internet and, and like reminded ourselves basically of like all the different activity structures that we have used or experienced as participants over the years. Mm. So when I say activity structure, anything that you can put, content into but isn't content based yeah so like this is stuff that is very um obvious a lot of it is obvious or or just reminders for facilitators so like you know a simple one would be like pair share like that's actually an activity structure right Mm -hmm. or minute papers like that's an activity structure um but then some of them are less common or people haven't seen them as much like magnet statements where you have participants make a statement that is true for them and then the group moves either close to them if they agree or far away if they don't Ooh, i like that and then Somebody else will say a statement, you know, and you can use that for any type of content. Yeah, it's like take a stand, but magnetize. I love that magnet piece to it, though. Mm -hmm. And and that the content is completely um, participant generated. You don't have to come up with the questions, right? Mm -hmm. If you're coming up with the questions, then it's spectrum questions. If they're coming up with the questions or the statements, it's um, magnet statements. Mm. And so we had like 30 of those things, like those activity structures. We had them on index cards. We had like little descriptions written down for them on the back to remind us. Um, I think we, I don't remember if we had written out, like we need these props for these activities, Mm -hmm. but we had those things. And then on the break, what we would do is like, we would be like, okay, we need to help them like better understand this concept. Okay. What is an activity structure we could use to like really dive into that concept? Like how, how could we unpack co-facilitation? We would put out like these cards and then we would be like, let's do this one. And then this one. And then that would be it. Like that's how we wrote our curriculum. And um, so that's the origin story. They were uh, of facilitator cards and me and Sam both kept making them for our future trainings. Like we use them for that training, but both of us were like, this is so much more fun to prepare for trainings. And also like we felt so much more empowered to uh, having to rely on having to like, instead of having to rely on your memory, Mm -hmm. you can actually just rely on the cards. Mm -hmm. And so I, I will, I have a facilitation this Friday and I'll come up with probably the first two hours of a five hour facilitation. But after those two hours, like I don't actually know what the group wants to learn mm-hmm. yet. They, and, and like to do surveys or to ask my contact person, like that is often not, um, it just hasn't been helpful enough in the past. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm going to do is I'll have, I'll have, you know, the first two hours planned out and then I'll have the stack of facilitator cards with me. And on the break, I'll just be like, yeah, okay, these are the things I want to cover. And these are the tools that I'm going to use in order to cover those topics. And I think that as facilitators, we have to do, we sort of do that anyway without the additional help for prompt, because if we're truly meeting the needs of the client and we're meeting the goals, we can't write an agenda before we meet them and a hundred percent stick to it. Because yep. it's like reading the group and realizing like, Ugh, this isn't, that whole afternoon isn't going to work. 
Like this is, yeah. it's not meeting the goal. So you sort of are forced into sometimes having those extremely stressful moments of like, I need to come up with something else. And unless you've got enough experience to go, oh, I know I can divert into like category four of all of my train and four, like I've got all of these backup plans and I can go to those. Not having that, having the prompts of those cards could be really advantageous to be able to actually be able to do that and not have as much stress because you have some sort of guideline to be yeah. able to help you do that. That's very it's, cool. It's, it's kind of like having a, um, like I won't have a co-facilitator this Friday, right? Mm. And it's just like this, like on the break, when you have a co-facilitator, you're like, what do you think we should do? And then they're mm-hmm. like, how about we do this? And you're like, oh yeah, oh, that makes me think of this, mm-hmm. right? Like having that back and forth and like, I'm not going to have that. So these cards make me feel more like secure in going in to be responsive because I know I'm going to want to be. Right. And like when we're planning trainings and curriculum, like we have the ability to like look at books and look at websites and look at like other resources, um, even though that can also be a really overwhelming prospect. But like we have that opportunity when we're planning, but we don't have that opportunity when we're like on a break. Great. And then we'll, we'll put a link when they go and you let us know and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time, Meg, and, and chatting with us and talking about facilitation. Yeah. Um, You're welcome. Anytime. If, I'm a huge facilitation geek. So, um, And if there are other facilitation geeks out there who would like to connect with you, is there a way yeah. that they can do that? Because I know that in the past you've been open to having people contact you. So, Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I love to talk to facilitators about facilitation. I always, um, like I said, big geek on that. So, um, and I've learned from doing these cards that that actually is like a specialized, (laughs) just like really how specialized that knowledge is. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I have a website, megbolger.com, B-O-L-G-E-R. Um, and that's where you can find like all of the projects that I'm working on. Um, and also if you're a big facilitation geek, then I would invite people to check out facilitating XYZ, um, where, uh, yeah, that was really the community we wanted to start mm-hmm. of um, of facilitators who are sharing their knowledge as facilitators, not just uh, in their content area. So that might be a fun project. It, it hasn't been added to in a while, but there's quite a lot on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anybody is feeling so inspired to uh, get their facilitation knowledge out there, um, it would be really cool to to help them um, by by getting that getting that site more active. So. Um, yeah, that's how I would encourage people, but yeah, feel free to email me, um, directly. I think that some people are like, oh, that person's probably really busy, but like, I don't know. I, that's how almost all great connections and and relationships that I have in my life are my Mm -hmm. co uh, creator, Sam of facilitator cards and co-author of the book. Like I reached out to him because I liked his website like over seven years ago and Mm. we've made so much stuff together since then. So, um, never underestimate the power of just like a random, random reach out. I, I mention it after every single workshop. Here's my card. Here's my email. Please email. I will answer those questions. It's surprising how many people do not do that. You know, like I, I did it when I was there and I, you know, I emailed people and I felt at the time, maybe this is a little bit stalkerish, but the connection is like the key piece and it ended me with a job here. So I yeah. think it's like, you've got to connect with people. And what I love about our community, experiential ed and the greater community is we're very, very open to sharing advice. And, uh, that's what I've always enjoyed about us, our connections, our conversations that we've ever had. And I know there haven't been that many, but any connection we've had has always been very well received and I've enjoyed that. So, yeah. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank fun. you so much, man. 
Thanks for listening. And do it again. Thanks for listening. And can you say,、uh, thanks for listening to High Five? Thanks for listening to High Five. <laughs> and then what about thanks for listening to High Five's podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting high five, guys.